We are continuing, and we started last week, a study in the Ten Commandments. Last week we looked at the Ten Commandments in the context of Scripture as a whole. This morning we're going to focus on the First Commandment. So I'll begin by reading in Exodus chapter 20, the first three verses, and then I have just a couple of brief passages in 1 Corinthians that we'll read as a follow-up to that. Please give your attention to God's holy and errant word. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. And then from 1 Corinthians chapter 8, I'll read verses 4 through 6. Therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence and that there is no God but one. For although there may be so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, Yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. And then flipping over to chapter 10, beginning in verse 19. What do I imply then? That food offered to idols is anything or that an idol is anything? No. I imply that what pagan sacrifice they offer to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be participants with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? I was watching ESPN earlier this week in the midst of preparing for this message on the First Commandment, and I saw an interview with a Hall of Fame quarterback who is approaching the end of his career. And as people realize he may not have many more years in the NFL, they are obviously asking about his plans for the future. And he made reference to that in the interview. He says, yeah, people ask me what I plan to do in life after football. And then he paused a moment and kind of chuckled and said, I always say to them, what do you mean? There is no life outside of football. And as I'm preparing this message on the first commandment, I thought, what a timely reminder that there are still a lot of false gods out there that people serve wholeheartedly. There is no life outside of football. J.I. Packer gives this definition of idolatry. He says, Your God is what you love, seek, worship, serve, and allow to control you. Your false God is what you love, seek, worship, serve, and allow to control you. That's the reality that we live in the midst of, is we're always trying to determine what truly do we love in life, seek, serve, find satisfaction in, find meaning and purpose in life, and what ultimately controls the decisions that we make and the actions that we take. 
In this first commandment that we're going to be looking at in detail this morning, in this first commandment, God is basically saying to his people, I want more from you than just your obedience. I want your whole heart. Obedience in and of itself is not enough. I want your whole heart. That's why the first commandment is foundational to the other nine. If you get the first commandment right, the other nine will fall into place. You get the first commandment wrong, the other nine don't matter. And I love the fact that when we think of the Ten Commandments as a code of ethics or a to-do list or a moral statement, really what God makes clear from the beginning is that this is all about a relationship, a relationship with God. And there's some very important truths that this first commandment communicate to us. The first one is, as simple as it sounds, and I know many of you learned this in toddler class in Sunday school, but the first lesson is there is only one true God. I don't think we need to be reminded of that any more now than we ever have in history. There is only one true God. And putting this back in the historical context in which God first uttered these words on Mount Sinai, it's important that we understand how radical this theology was that God is spelling out for his people. Back in that day, the idea that there was one true God who is the judge of all men was totally foreign to everyone except the Israelites. Back then... They were swimming against cultural pressure, and they, they began it there in Mount Sinai, and actually began it before that, and they would continue it all the way through the writings of the New Testament. Because you think about it, they were delivered from the Egyptians. The Egyptians had hundreds and hundreds of gods that they served. They came into the land of Canaan by God's grace, the promised land, the land flowing of milk and honey, and the Canaanites served hundreds of gods. They would deal, they had their neighbors all around them through the entire Old Testament history, the Assyrians, the Babylonians. They all worshipped many, many gods, the Greeks and the Romans, who became the dominant culture of the New Testament, worshipped many gods, the god of war, the god of love, the god of the harvest, the god of the underworld, the god of the arts. God says to his people, there is only one true God. And that's where your theology begins, and that's the foundation of your theology. Now, you may say to yourself, well, that's changed a lot since the time of the Romans. We don't have all these weird gods in the philosophy and theology of our culture, do we? Matter of fact, you'll hear people say, well, you know, monotheism has never been more popular than it is now when you think of the Jews and the the Muslims and the Christians making up such great percentage of the world, they're all monotheists, aren't they? Just look around. Listen to what people are saying. They may say they believe in one God, but they absolutely refuse to accept any absolute definition for who that God is. Everybody makes up their own God, more or less. And so we have a bunch of personalized gods. 
I was reading an interview with one of my favorite musicians, and I hesitate to say he's one of my favorite musicians because he has great music, I certainly endorse his music, but his lyrics will lead you astray if you're not very careful, if you're not discerning. But one of the reasons I even enjoy his lyrics is because unlike so many popular artists, he actually thinks deeply about things and writes lyrics about such things. He writes about spiritual matters. He writes about religion. But he's off base. And his name's Jeff Tweedy. He's the main guy in the band Wilco, if you know the band. But I was reading an interview with Jeff Tweedy, and listen to what he says. He says he was asked about what he believed about God since he writes so many lyrics about God. This is what he said. He said, I'm more inclined to see the similarities in the religious experience for all the different denominations and organized religions that I come across. I'm more inclined to try and find common ground than I am to single out one to identify with. You hear what he's saying? He ultimately picks and chooses from all the different denominations and religions that he encounters, the ones that he is most comfortable with. He has a personalized God that doesn't quite look like anybody else's God. And really, isn't that the dominant gods of our culture? Isn't that really where everybody's gone? If there is one God, then it's the buffet God. The God where you go along and pick out the parts you like and leave behind the parts you don't like. God is saying in the first commandment that obedience begins with sound theology. You need to believe the right things about God before you worry about what obedience to God looks like. Let me go back to that passage in 1 Corinthians 8 for a moment. I'll read that portion of it again. We know, Paul says, that an idol has no real existence and that there is no God but one. For although there may be so-called gods in heaven and on earth, and indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. Now, you could read that the wrong way and almost fit what Paul's saying into this culture that we live in. He's saying, hey, a lot of gods out there, everybody has all these different gods, but for us, in our the view of reality, there is one God. That's not what he's saying. He's saying people serve a lot of false gods, but we know better because the one true God has revealed himself to us, the one from whom all existence comes, the one creator, the one Lord, the one judge of all. And so you may ask the question, if all these gods are false. They're really figments of sinful men's imaginations. If that's really the case, when we talk about religion in the world, then what's the harm in them if they're really imaginary? What can false gods do if there's no reality to them? Well, that's where we go back to Galatians 4. Remember that verse that was read earlier in the service? Paul says there, formerly when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not God's. You were enslaved to these false gods. Now, that might strike you as kind of odd at first. How can you be enslaved to something that's imaginary? How can you be enslaved to something that doesn't exist? Well, these gods, all these other gods, are imaginary, but people give their hearts to them. They're devoted to these gods. 
And it's that devotion to the false god that is the real spiritual enslavement. It's real bondage. Let me just, thinking back to football, since we're on that subject and it's kind of on everybody's minds these days. Manti Teo, you remember him? What is it, six months, ten months ago, whenever that was? He was a Notre Dame football player. And as far as we know the story, it all sounds fishy, but as far as we know the story, he, was, he spoke publicly often about this girl that he loved, that he wanted to marry, that he was wholeheartedly devoted to, and he lived his life around this relationship with this girl, but it turned out she was imaginary. That his friend had made her up, and he had entered into an a internet relationship with somebody who didn't exist. And I only bring that up as an example, not to pick on poor Manti anymore, but to bring it up as an example to say, there's a, 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 an imaginary person who was totally changing his life. He was circling, you know, putting his life around her at the center of his life, and yet she didn't exist. And that's what people who worship false gods do. They're devoted to something that's imaginary, but that devotion in and of itself is the slavery, the bondage that will ultimately destroy them. Paul says, as a Christian, as a born-again Christian, he says, and here's the rallying cry for Christians, I will not be mastered by anything. 1 Corinthians 6. Except the Lord, of course. These gods are imaginary, but the power behind them is real. And understand that it's not just some kind of psychological bondage. It's not some internal chains that we put on ourselves when we worship false gods. There is a spiritual force at work here. And that's what Paul's talking about in 1 Corinthians 10. Remember, Notice there again, verse 20 and 21. He's telling new believers to stop taking part in the sacrifices, the, sacrificial, the sacrifices of their pagan background, to stop going back to the temples and being a part of pagan worship. And this is what he says. What pagans sacrifice they offer to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be participants with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. You see, there are only two spiritual entities. God who created all things, including Satan himself, and Satan who is opposed to all things that pertain to God. And if you do not worship the one true God who created all things, then you are being taken captive by the only other spiritual entity that demands worship, and that's Satan himself. That explains why. When that's the reality, when you talk about, I mean, it's so confusing, all the different religions, all the different philosophies, everything that's out there, when it comes to God's perspective, there's only two options. Worship of the one true God and blind worship that ultimately is to Satan himself. And so that's why God ultimately, the second point of the first commandment, the second point that we draw from it, is that the one true God is absolutely exclusive. He is exclusive in his relationship with you. He demands exclusivity in this relationship. Let me take you back to chapter 19 again and remind you what we looked at last week. Chapter 19, here's how God introduces himself to his people when he meets them there at Mount Sinai, beginning in verse 4. 
You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. You shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. He said, I have already chosen you. I have delivered you from bondage. I have brought you to myself. You belong to me. You are my prized possession. I am in a relationship with you, and I have taken all the initiative. I have delivered you, brought you to myself, and I am entering into a covenant with you, a covenant relationship. And when we talk about covenant, when we try to illustrate that in our lives, we're always talking about marriage, don't we? Because marriage is not only the best illustration of what the covenant relationship between God and his people is, marriage is actually patterned after the relationship between God and his people. And that helps us to understand why God demands this of us when he comes to us with his commandments. First thing, there is one true God and I am your God. The God who redeemed you. The God who brought you to myself and made you my people. If you think about our relationship with God as being like a marriage, then when you hear him say that you are to have no other gods before me, and you really understand the language here, because in the Hebrew it says, before my face. Big difference there than what we might tend to read that. When we read that, say, you shall have no other gods before me, you might hear that for God to be saying, I have to be number one. You know, you may have ten gods, but just make sure I'm number one. That's not what he's saying, is it? He's not saying, you can have other gods, just make sure you like me better than all those other gods. What he's really saying is that you must never have another god in my presence, before my face. In other words, I'd better not ever catch you with another god. And oh, by the way, I'm omniscient. I see all things, I know all things, I even know the very secrets of your heart. That's what he's saying in the first commandment. I started dating my wife when we were freshmen in college. Only just a few weeks into our freshman year, we dated all four years. But after that first year, we spent a lot of time together, got to know each other really well the first year. And then at the end of the, first, the second semester of my freshman year, I went home to my home and she went home to her home. Didn't see much of each other that summer. I decided it was a good time to go hang out with some of my old girlfriends. I thought, you know, I'll catch up with some of them. We were still friends, still in touch. We'd go to the movies. I'd go over to their house. We'd watch TV together. Spent a lot of time together. My wife frowned on that. Um, I said to her, but I'm not committed to them. I'm just hanging out with them. You're still my number one. I like you better than all of them. That didn't fly. Um, You see, we understand it in the relationship of an exclusive marriage-like relationship. We understand it there, don't we? Down in verse 5, you just skip down there to to that commandment in in verse 5. It says, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. Now, we have a hard time as sinners, we have a hard time thinking about jealousy in a way that doesn't involve sin. Because almost all of our jealousy is totally corrupted by sin. But there's one place where we can think about jealousy and think, okay, now I understand how a God, the holy God of the universe, can be jealous. And it's in the context of marriage. Isn't that the only place we can understand it? 
where it's legitimate and proper and good that a husband be jealous for his wife and a wife jealous for her husband. And that's the attitude that God has for his redeemed people. He says, I am a jealous God because you belong to me. And I will not share you with any of these other false enslaving gods. I will not share you because I love you. And the whole purpose is to do what's best for you. And that's to keep you in an exclusive relationship with me. The first commandment is a requirement for absolute loyalty. That's why Joshua, when he stood there in the promised land about to die, to leave the people of God into the next generation, he lays this challenge before him. Let me read it for you again. Now, therefore, fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and faithfulness. Put away the gods that your father served beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. He was just reiterating the first commandment, wasn't he? He's saying, don't lose this. This is foundational. All other commandments of the law depend upon this one. Give your heart to the Lord exclusively and put away your other gods. The early Christians were burned at the stake, fed to the lions, beaten, killed. All of these things happened to to many of these early Christians because they wouldn't say Jesus, they wouldn't say Jesus is a Lord or Jesus is a God. If they had said that, the Romans would have given them their blessing because the Romans encouraged that sort of thing. The Romans said, go ahead, serve your little tribal gods. We're not going to interfere. Just make sure that the emperor is the God to you and he has say all of your God and anything else you believe. But the Christians went to the stake and they went to the lions saying, no, Jesus is Lord. He's the Lord, not a Lord. He's the God, not a God. And they lost everything because of that confession in this world, but gained everything in the world to come. I know idolatry, when you use that term for it, it sounds outdated and primitive because we have pictures of people in robes bowing down before metal statues. But that is only a superficial representation of what what real idolatry is. The first commandment defends idolatry as anything or anyone that we put in the place of God. Anything or anyone that we trust in, that we depend upon, that we seek our satisfaction in, ultimately, instead of God. And so let me ask you a few questions this morning. What gets you out of bed in the morning? You know that moment when you're really, really tired and you really don't want to just hit the snooze button and go back to sleep. What gets you out of bed? What do you think about this coming up in the day that gets you excited and gives you the energy to get out of bed? What is it that preoccupies your thoughts throughout the day? What is it that you spend your money on? How do you spend your time? What makes you feel significant? What makes you feel worthwhile? What makes you feel successful? I'm not saying that any of those things are necessarily your God because... There are things in our lives that we love. I love my wife. I love my family. I love this church. I love my job. I love my car. I love my dog. I love lots of things in life. But the challenge is to keep those loves from taking the only place that can be occupied by the God that I serve. 
Somebody asked me after the first service, well, how do you do that? <laughs> it's like, that's the sanctification of the Christian life. That's what our life is about. How do I love people and things in my life without worshiping them and drawing my satisfaction from them? That's what the whole Christian life is about, is that battle. There's no easy answers. We are born with idolatrous hearts. We turn God's gifts into idols, and we seek our purpose and satisfaction in them. And that's the place that only God should occupy. Solomon started out with the gift of wisdom, but in his heart, he hadn't given his heart wholly to the Lord. And so he spent a long time finding, trying to find his purpose and satisfaction and meaning in life in wine, women, and song, palaces, armies, power. He got to the end of it, and what did he say? All is vanity. All is striving after the wind. Which brings me to the last point. We've talked about the commandments. We're given to us to give us freedom, to give us the abundant life that Christ promises to us. That's why the commandments were given to us. They're not meant to restrict our freedom and to be a burden placed on our shoulders. They're meant to show us the way to true freedom. And you understand, if you really keep the first commandment and you give your heart to the Lord first and foremost, that's where the real abundant life is, where you find that this one true God when we give our heart to him completely, he's all that we need. That Shema, you know the, the term Shema from the Old Testament. Every day, the Jewish family would repeat the Shema. It was the one confession of faith that was said over and over and over. It's what's found in Deuteronomy 6. It says this, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. Hear the first commandment in that? Hear the Lord your God. The Redeemer God who saved you. That God is the one true God. How should we respond? you know what the rest of the Shema says? You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. All these words that I command you today shall be upon your heart. Give me your heart. Love me more than anything else in life. And I will have this relationship with you that will really meet your needs. And we know, as the rest of the scripture plays out, as the plan of redemption comes to a completion, this all points to Jesus Christ, doesn't it? Jesus Christ is the bridegroom. The church is the bride. He's in a covenant relationship with us. And he demands that we give him our whole heart. Moses met with God on Mount Sinai, and God said to him, I want a relationship with my people. I want you to obey my commandments, but I wanted you to do it because you love me with all your heart. But God only revealed himself in a small way during that time. He's fully revealed himself in Jesus Christ. You know what? Moses actually met Jesus Christ on the top of the Mount of Transfiguration. Where Moses and Elijah stood there with Jesus Christ on the Mount of Transfiguration. And do you, hear, do you remember what God the Father said about Jesus Christ? This is my beloved son. Listen to him. This is the fulfillment of the law. He's the one. I've revealed myself to you through my son, Jesus Christ. Love him. Commit yourself to him. Make him the first love of your life. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And then he demands that allegiance that we give to God the Father, to him as the son. 
to the rich young ruler. He said, sell everything you have and come and follow me. But he was unwilling because he wasn't willing to leave behind his false gods. Matthew 10 says this. This is the challenge that Jesus laid before those who would presume to be his disciples. Beginning at verse 37. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Do you hear the first commandment in that? He's just reiterating the same commandment. It's the base of our relationship with God through Christ. Love him more than all the good gifts that he's given you. And love all the good gifts that he's given you for the sake of him and glorifying and worshiping and thanking and praising him. And then you'll have the good life, the great life, the life you were created to have, not just now, for all eternity. The first commandment was given to free us from the slavery to false gods so that we might know and love and have real abundant life with the true God through Jesus Christ. When we realize that, when we see that Christ is the one through whom we are reconciled to God, we abandon any hope in our own righteousness. We stand in amazement and awe before Christ who kept this law perfectly. He's the only one who even... We can't even imagine what it's like to keep this commandment perfectly, but Jesus Christ kept it perfectly in every moment of his life. And then he went to the cross and died for us. And he bore the punishment that our idolatry deserves. And he gave to us the gift of the status of one who has loved God perfectly in all times and all ways. That's his righteousness given to us as a gift. The first commandment. There's one true God, and that God desires an exclusive relationship with you where you give him your whole heart. And when you do that, he gives you the abundant life of a covenant relationship with him through all eternity. That's the promise of the first commandment. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the Holy Spirit to help us understand it. But Lord, as we contemplate what kind of changes this would demand upon our lives, we are left feeling hopeless and helpless. And so we come to you, Lord, and pray, give us new hearts. Give us strength. Give us a vision of Christ that will drive us forward to know him better and to leave behind the enslaving gods of our past. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.